if you want to be a guest, please email me. I have received so many emails of people that are excited and passionate about being a guest on this show. The process is time consuming. I go through about an hour long pre-interview and I determine where you'd fit best in the season. So if you've gone through the pre-interview process or we've messaged back and forth via email and haven't gone through the pre-interview process, I'm not ignoring you, I, I promise. There's just a lot on my plate and I am one person. That being said, I look forward to talking with every one of you that is interested in being on this podcast. Y'all are amazing. And I honestly could not do this podcast without the support that I receive from each one of you. So thank you so much. Um, Hold on. Yeah. Hey, Abel. Welcome back. How are you doing? It's always good to see you, Steph. I'm good. We act like we haven't been talking for 20 minutes. Um, I know, right? I'm yeah. trying to. I'm trying to be all professional and stuff. I know, but. right? Hello. How are you this morning? <laughs> uh, there's um, the Siri voice. We were just talking about Moms of Liberty, a really light topic to start our morning for you. It just hit afternoon. Just a very palatable, light topic. What we were talking about was so good. The things that you were saying, just like the history behind these hate groups. And I said, I got to press record because this is so good. I honestly believe that these are necessary conversations. I will speak for myself as a Black man, you know, as a Black man who has, who is amidst this process of deconstructing from evangelical Christianity, um, changing my worldview. day by day, sometimes hour by hour, you know, based on what I'm learning and experiencing. Um, But there are still aspects of this that as as much oppression as I experience and the things that I have to deal with, um, I have to understand that I'm not the only community that is oppressed. And you know, you made a statement when we were kind of chatting before, you know, talking about the Mothers of Liberty and kind of the prequel to this conversation that we're having right now. <laughs> um, you 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 said that in your experience and in mine as well, um, men of color were often more open to understanding the harms of the patriarchy and being willing to have those conversations mm-hmm. and to make those personal changes. Um that's also, in my opinion, in my lived experience, that's because men of color, men of color have never had a, a, they've never had the same seat at the table of the patriarchy. Mm. The, the patriarchy in this nation is about white Christian men. Mm-hmm. And so there's aspects of that that allow me to come and get crumbs from the table, you know what I mean? But because I'm not a white Christian man, you know, there are two of those things that I've distanced. I, well, one of those things I've distanced myself from, and one of those things that the universe said, no, bro, that's not you. You (laughs) Yeah. But, but we're going to let people figure that out. (laughs) Yeah. Just, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll get a hint, but, uh, (laughs) but there, 
I was never, I never had that seat at the table. And mm-hmm. I think that's why. And I think it's important to, um, as a man, um, black or otherwise, to to speak to the harms of the patriarchy and the standards of the patriarchy. And so much of that is found in evangelical and fundamental Christianity. And it's upheld by evangelical and fundamental Christianity. So for me to have an opportunity to to shed some light as I learn, not just on um, the racism that is so rampant um, in these religious ideologies, in these structures, but the misogyny um, by way of the patriarchy that is rampant in these in these ideologies, these religious ideologies. And that's something that um, of late, it's been it's been more of an intentional focus of mine. If I want people to engage me and to be conscious of the things that I encounter and the things that my community encounters that um, are obstacles that we constantly have to get over, then when engaging other communities, I I have to keep that same energy and be willing to do the same thing. Yeah. My father raised me in a way I was a military brat and, you know, summers are out and, um, you know, my dad's waking up 530 in the morning, getting ready to go to work and all that stuff, doing the whole military thing in the Air Force. And um, it's summertime. I'm trying to sleep until 10 o'clock. Easy. You know, I'm trying to. (laughs) And my dad, you know, would wake me up. He'd get out of bed and he would wait until he got dressed and wait until he was about to go out the door. So it was around six o'clock still, so pretty early. But he would come in my room and wake me up. And the first few times he did it, I remember it like it was yesterday. He said, son, time to get up. Men around here, we get up when we get stuff done. Mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. no. And not e- it wasn't even a thing about, you know, yeah, there were chores and take out the trash and that kind of stuff. But he instilled in me to get up early and start start taking care of the things that I had mm. planned for my day. You know what I mean? I was a musician, so you know I have to I have to learn this keyboard part for this 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 gig I have on Saturday or this song for Sunday at church. And I said, well, get to it, get to it now, mm-hmm. so that when your friends are up and you want to go outside and play at two o'clock and three o'clock, you can go do whatever the hell you want to. Um, that was something that was instilled in me very early. Um, and it was very it was very different in regard to the way that I was allowed to speak to women. You know, I was the youngest boy, um, and all I had was older sisters. And they were awful to me. Like I, I love my I love my family, but they were they were they were the the just the typical big sisters. And I and I was the most annoying little brother ever. So they were probably justified in being the typical big sister a lot of times. But um, the way that I would speak to them and the things that I would say when I was annoyed or when I was frustrated or, you know, when I would, you know, go to my mom, go to my father and talk about something that I know he didn't approve of that my mom did or said or whatever. Even when I knew he agreed with my perspective, he didn't tolerate any disrespect for a woman out of my mouth. Zero. 
Right. I know what the patriarchy looks like because I live under it, under it, right? How does that infiltrate into how you were raised? Yeah, I, I, w- I was raised with the understanding um, from a very young age that I was still Black and that people were going to treat me different because I was okay. Black. So I understood at a really relatively young age, even though I sought after it and I wanted the approval of mm. you know, the white kids and the white men around me, um, I was taught and told by my father specifically that, hey, hey, my guy, that's that's not how this works. You're not going mm. to be viewed that way. You're not going to be experienced that way. And I think that as I grew and I had life experiences that kind of validated that teaching by my father. Um, it, it just never allowed me to 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 drive in the same course as that that typical alpha male kind of a guy. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Even though even though I'm I have the physical capabilities of being that. I mean, I'm a I was a professional fighter. That's the thing I did with my life. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I I have the physical capabilities of being that but uh those early teachings never never let me drive in that direction stay with us we'll be right back thank you to those that have reached out with your support whether you have left a review if you haven't left a review this would be a really really good time to leave a review read every single one of them so thank you and for those that are subscribers to my Patreon, thank you. It means so much. One of the new features that I am adding for my paid Patreon subscribers is the chat feature. And this is just a way that we can all continue this conversation that we're having in the podcast. And if you are not a paid subscriber, unfortunately, the chat feature won't be available to you. But you can be a free subscriber and you'll just get the weekly newsletters. Y'all are amazing. And I honestly could not do this podcast without the support that I received from each one of you. So thank you so much. I think it's beautiful thing when two people talk about what they went through and the trauma that they experienced. And I said it this way with somebody the other day that in a group of women, non-binary, trans, um, when we share our, our trauma, when we, when we get together and we share our trauma with one another, it's kind of like a quilt, like each person contributes to it. And through that trauma creates something so beautiful that we all experience, right? Like that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing here. Yeah. When it's done correctly. The and the thing that is done correctly, and I don't think that's something that people um really dive into and talk about enough. I think as Christians, we we snippetly have used the word community. So mm-hmm. so so you know, no, we're in a community, we believe the same things, we paid tithes at the same church, we have the same man sitting behind this pulpit with a bad suit on. telling us what we're going to do and not do with our lives. So we're, we're in community with each other. I don't know you. 
I don't know your struggles. I don't know. Not that I need to know all your business or nothing like that, but I don't, I don't, I'm not connected to you. I have the community of people who I am connected to, but I think that that term community gets like so snippedly thrown around within Christian communities. And that's really the thing that we're trying to do correctly now is mm-hmm. to build community in a healthy way. But because just like me, I'm having to unpack so many concepts of growing up and even with the fantastic perspective of my father growing up in a church with that patriarchal system and growing up in this society with that system, I still have to unpack so much of that, unlearn so much of that and do the work to change those things day over day. And I think that a lot of people, whether it's in regard to racism, whether it's in regard to the patriarchy, whether it's in regard to building healthy functioning community, so many people feel like because I left the church, I now am in a place where I can do these things in a healthy manner. The work still has to be done. And I think that's the thing that's getting skipped over in order to build that community and to have all those things that you were just talking about. People have to take the time and do the work and unpack the harms of the church and the harms of the society and the harms of these communities that we've been in and raised them for so long. Oh, it's it's absolutely true. That's why decolonizing has to happen. Um, and they're two separate things. You can deconstruct from your religion of origin, but if you don't decolonize from it, if you don't look at the community that you were raised in and see the problems with it, you're just going to perpetuate it with a different label. Absolutely. And it's going to be a problem. There, there's a fantastic creator on TikTok um, who I follow. Um, and he's not, he's, kind of like me, he's not out trying to have a million followers. He's not trying to make money off TikTok and do all this stuff. He's just kind of sharing his experience and, you know, giving some information. Um, He grew up in a seven-day Venice church um, and had deconstructed from that. And the posts that made me start gravitating towards his content, he, it was a simple one-liner. He said, um, deconstructing your faith without decolonizing it is like faith without works mm-hmm. and that was and that and that was his whole post and i was like yes sir instant follow and yep uh, yeah i think that's kind of a a, a a a direct way of kind of wrapping up all that thought like deconstructing your faith without decolonizing it is like faith without works yeah yep a hundred percent so yeah. Moms of Liberty. Give yes. us give us the history, <laughs> Professor. Man, um, I well, Professor by no means, but um <laughs> mom, Moms of Liberty, man, they're they're really a a a resurgence, for lack of a better term, of the daughters of the Confederacy. Um when I when I look back at history, it's like I in so many ways, I feel like, you know, after the Civil War, you know, the the Confederate states lost the war. But in terms of the culture, I feel like that there were aspects of a cultural war, for lack of a better term, that they won. 
they mm-hmm. were able they were able to champion the education going out to children across America. Um, mm-hmm. The the lost cause ideology, you know, what I mean, and so many people think that that is something that was kind of centered in the South. Hell no, I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, and I was I was schooled with that perspective. That lost cause ideology is something that championed my education in Anchorage, Alaska, in public schools on military bases. Can you military bases? Can you expand on that? And by the way, I feel like that's so poignant to say specifically military bases. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, but can you expand on that? The education, yeah, um, the just the concepts, you know, to to come across, um, you know, and I was born in '78. You know, I'm dating myself a little bit, you know, and to to go through schooling years in those early '80s, mid mm-hmm. mid early. Um, to to come across conversations of Martin Luther King Jr. and and you know wouldn't dare mention Malcolm X and Rosa mm-hmm. Parks and um, it was always a thing of you know the South you know it was always phrases like heritage not hate. Um, mm. You know, to be taught in a school that the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery. It had to do with states' rights. Mm-hmm. State states' rights to do what? Fact of the matter, if the if those states had maintained their rights, my ass would be in chains right now. Mm-hmm. Especially living where I'm living. You know, and mm-hmm. it was it was it was very simple. There was there was not a lot of detail that was put into the education, but it was kind of a line that was drawn in the sand, where it's like these things in terms of you know issues with um, racism and issues with slavery and the history of slavery and the black experience. There's this line drawn in the sand where you know even conversations in schools about how you know, many of the slave owners, they were very, many of the slaves were like extended family to these people. And, mm-hmm. like, you know what I mean? So it's like that, that's the schooling that I grew up in. And I didn't hear anything different from that until I started, until I got into junior high school and I experienced and had to sit in the classrooms of intelligent Black educators. And and they made me read through history, and it, and that it was kind of a shock to hear something different and experience something different. Um, but it was still very watered down because it was all within the confines of what they were allowed to say and not allowed to say within the school district in Anchorage, Alaska. Yeah, I was in public school, and then a weird stint in homeschool and then put back into public school. So it was, I had a very strange education and little blip yeah. in that. But I can say, I remember in elementary school, we did know the cause of the civil war. I can only speak on for my elementary mm-hmm. school was slavery. And then I remember mm-hmm. when I went back into public school, eighth grade, U.S. history, 
we watched the full Ken Burns documentary on the Civil War. I haven't watched it for years, but I remember that documentary addressed slavery more so than our textbooks ever would. And that was even that was that was ballsy for a teacher to do that. Very ballsy at that time. And I'm positive there was pushback because I know that there were some kids that were not present in there. So they parents removed them for that. That was what we were taught for the Civil War. But I know I've mentioned this to you before. I wasn't taught much about the civil rights movement, but I didn't think that racism existed I thought racism was attached to the civil rights movement and then it was gone once that was gone. There just wasn't follow through with education. But that's why there's so many people um, that are still having conversations and debates right now. Yeah. um, Saying things like, you know, that was so long ago. You're not oppressed. You're not this. You're not that. that. That's why so much of those those talking points are coming out either because they are the people who grew up and are our age or older than us. You know what I mean? And why I'm older than you. I think I, I you're six years years. older. Yeah. I put, I put a few years in you. Sorry, (laughs) but they're, they're (laughs) within, they're within our generation or the generation, you know, just above us who was raised with this teaching in school. So it's carried through to life or they are the children of the people who were raised with that ideology. Mm-hmm. And it's it's I it's it's just crazy for people to live life feeling like the passing of time is a clear indicator of change. That's it's, a really good that's the quote. You choose to educate yourself. You choose, like you have to make that choice. I have to make that choice to get into very uncomfortable conversations in order yeah. to grow. And risk being taken to task in order to grow. The journey. It's like a choice. It, it absolutely. I mean, there, there's there's very few situations in life where you grow without some sort of pain or discomfort, whether you're trying to um, strengthen yourself or increase your lung capacity or your knowledge on something or you know, even, even a kid having a crazy fast growth spurt, like there's, there's a degree of pain that's often involved with that. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like it's in order to grow, there's going to be a process of this journey where shit's just not going to be comfortable and there's no way around that. And I think what's happening now is when these issues are coming up and much like the kids who were removed from the classroom when that movie was being played when you were growing up, people are are more invested in their immediate comfort and the mm-hmm. things that they've always known to be true and that they and their their personal experience and their personal worldview. They're more invested in that than they are invested in growth and the pain that's associated with it. Where that plays out. So there's a lot of people that are Christians right now. Like, oh, but we love Jesus. We're not like, we're not racist. We love Jesus. We love everybody. Do you though? Yeah. Do you though? Uh, the big the big thing that I think people um, don't take the time to really think about and understand is um, the haven that the church has got 
gotten in regards to history and culture, the things that they've been able to do and get away with. So while um, the Emancipation Proclamation is pushed forward in the 1800s, 1865, and I mean, the end of the Civil War in 1865, there's, there's all of these things that are happening, but all of this culture has been held onto, all of this racist, bigoted ideology <laughs> misogynistic ideology has been held onto through all of these these moments of progress so to speak mm-hmm. and they've been held onto in the church and the church has been able to allow that ideology to fester mm-hmm. and to and to stir and it's all been done under a guise of the love of Jesus but it's been allowed to fester and to stir and we're going to get these people in this you know we talked about it just a little bit ago in this local school board and then those people will eventually run for maybe mayor and then state office and then national office and we think about things like that and oh my gosh and then those people are up but we don't take time to think about the children the kids that are being raised in the wake of that festering bullshit that's yes. been hiding in the church that has now been spread to the school board and spread to the city and spread on a state level and now spread on a national level. And that's how we got to where we are. The church festered this shit. The church hit it. The church made it okay for bigotry and racism to stay in place under guise of the love of Jesus. That that's how we got where we are. The church is complicit. The church needs to be brought up on charges for this shit. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm gonna say something, and then I would love to hear about the Azusa Street revival. Yeah, which a lot of people are probably thinking, "Wow, that's really strange." Uh, what is that? And you'll find out, and why it's important to talk about it if we're gonna talk about racism in the mm-hmm. church. Um. No one's saying Christians can't hold political office. The problem is, is that evangelicals, because I, when I say Christian, for me, there's a hard line between mainline and evangelical. I have met fantastic, is it ELCA, ECLA, it's Lutheran, the super progressive form of Lutheran or super progressive Methodist or super progressive Episcopalians. I've met fantastic people that bear the name Christian and they are working hard to decolonize. What we're saying, I think, is that evangelicals, I have a hard time back in that because with that comes racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, all the things. Um, I have a hard time. I don't want, I don't want somebody like that in, in office because the, the type of people, like I wasn't evangelical. I was taught to be part of that group that took over this nation. I was taught that when I got to those positions or obviously my husband, right. Cause like female, but when yeah. I was inside of those circles. I was supposed to make sure that everybody became a Christian like me. 
That's why I have a hard time with evangelicals holding office because it's not for them. It's not about serving the public. It's about serving their need to convert as many people as they can to white Jesus. But even their methods for doing that, I mean, it's it's like they don't even read the the book that they're they're trying to champion on other people. It's like they they walk up this. Yeah, they walk up to someone and. You know, I'm this and this and this. Nah, I'm not really interested in that. I live life with this perspective. And instead of dusting off their feet, like it says to do in Matt, what is it, Matthew 10, 10 and 14, dusting off your feet and just keep it moving. You know what I mean? Then I have dusting to demonize. Yeah. Yeah. Then, then I have to demonize you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or I have to pressure you. And enforce enough vitriolic hate that's going to somehow make you want to be more like me or punish you in a way that's unrecoverable for not being like me. Gosh, I feel like we could go on like the longest tangent with that um, of how we were taught. At least I can speak from my experience. I was taught that if anybody disagreed with me, they were wrong. And it was my job to dehumanize them, period. That's how parents are taught to raise their children. We wonder why this generation that's like the boomers dehumanize everybody. It's because they were taught by people like Dobson how to dehumanize their children. And if you can dehumanize a child, you can dehumanize anybody. And just recognizing like we were the first people our parents dehumanized. And that's that's terrible. And part of yeah. dehumanizing de- dehumanizing is saying not only are you wrong, Abel, you're wrong and you're a threat. Because if my if I can train my brain to see you as a threat, I don't see you as a person. I see you as an object that I either need to get rid of, get around, or run away from. Yeah, you're so, not a person anymore. Um, there was. Definitely the aspect of dehumanizing people, but for for me and my upbringing, because of the history of the church that I grew up in, um, it was never a thing where if someone disagreed with what I thought, that it was it was never the norm, and I never had I've never experienced adults or anyone around me sitting in, you know diving through apologetics to try to convince this person that they're wrong mm-hmm. um because of the church that I grew up in and the history of it i it wasn't taught to us that way but the culture was well if you don't rock with me i'm gonna just, i'm gonna just go over here now i will i'm gonna go to this this wednesday night or friday night service and i'm probably gonna call you a demon in front of the entire church community but i'm not going to argue with you about it i'm gonna i'm gonna dust off my feet dust Mm -hmm. off my sandals and i'm gonna go this way but i think um tying it back into um gosh just that pentecostal movement and the church of god in christ and the assemblies of god i think that that schism um is something that kind of shaped some of that culture at least in regard to my experience um for for the people listening I grew up in the church of God in Christ and I was, I was, my family was 
generations into the church of God in Christ, you know, a couple of generations in. And um, I never understood the history of it. And while I was attending church at this church of God in Christ, I was doing school at an assembly of God high school right down the road. I mean, half mile down the road, maybe. Um, And our churches did a lot of things together, you know, special services here and there. We'd come support them for certain specific things. They would come support us for certain specific things. And it was a random Sunday night. And Sunday night services at my church, they were always a little more lit. You know, Sunday night services were the kind of services where anyone could grab the mic and give their testimony. They could (laughs) sing a song they wanted Mm to. Um, Side note, this is crazy. One of the craziest things I ever heard in testimony service, there was a lady who had been coming to church for so long and praying about her husband and he's such a sinner and he's all this stuff. And you pray that I get him into church and all this stuff. And she's just telling the whole church for business. And her husband finally comes into church. And he gets saved. And I mean, he gets saved, saved. And he's in the church for about two weeks. He's, I mean, he's, you know, hanging out with the brothers on the deacon board and doing all that stuff. And he comes to a Sunday night testimony service and someone fucked up and gave him a microphone. And he grabbed, (laughs) oh, no, Stephanie, listen, he grabbed the microphone and he was like, um, you know, my life is so much better now that I've given my heart to Jesus. You know, I'm closer with my wife. I'm closer with my kids. You know, I'm not drinking anymore. I feel healthier. I feel better. Shit. Who wouldn't serve a God like this? Says it says shit. Who wouldn't serve a God like this in the microphone Sunday night? And then the crazy thing, another conversation, they demonized him so bad for that. That he left the church again. Yeah. But, but back to the story. Um, it was a Sunday night, and the pastor of the church, that church down the street, the Assembly of God Church, randomly came to our church on a Sunday night, and it was like, that's that's strange. But like, we're like, okay, yeah, y'all want to come party with us? Like, let's let's party, let's kick it. And they came in, and there, there's all these people in there, you know. I'm. I'm just clapping off beat. It was fine. It was, <laughs> it clap. Well, they were they were clapping on the one and the three. That was just distinctly different. You know what I mean? They they were let the record show they were on beat, but they were just on the one and the three. So if you know, you know. But um, they're sitting there, and then one of the elders of our church asked their pastor, "Well, you you can't. You guys came by. We appreciate you coming by. Do you want to say anything?" And the pastor says, yeah, and he gets up in the pulpit, in the microphone, and he just starts sobbing. And he apologizes for the history that he realized of the church, of the Assemblies of God in mm. regards to the Church of God in Christ. I mean, sobbing, you know, and like, you know, people do that church cry, but it was like that ugly cry where you can't hardly yeah. breathe and you can't, yep. it was, it was, it was a real cry. It was filled with sorrow and he was apologizing for the history of the assemblies of God. And me being who I am, I just started looking after that man in the early 1900s, there was this revival. It's called the Azusa street revival, I believe in Florida. And um, it was just this ongoing revival where people were coming and, 
there was this big move of the spirit and people were speaking in tongues and all of this stuff. It was, it was just one of those kind of revivals that just was going on and on and on. And um, I believe the person who did the revival, I believe his name was Seymour. I may be wrong, but um, anyways, there, there was, there was, there were churches that, that came to be out of that, revival out of that movement and um within this these churches um white ministers and black ministers were given equal authority under the spirit to 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 teach to to pray to cast out demons to prophesy Mm -hmm. and what ended up happening in the early 1900s i believe 1906 ish you know maybe maybe a year or two off but in those early 1900s, many of the white congregants didn't like the idea of sitting and listening to black people speak to them in a position of authority. So what happened just two hours down the road from where I'm sitting in my office right now in Hot Springs, Arkansas, two miles down the road, the Assembly of God gathered. Well, they they people who disagreed with sharing this space with black believers, they got together and they formed their own body. And I, I believe it was years later. I want to say 1914, I believe I might be, again, I'm not good with dates, but I might be off, but that's when the assembly of God was formed. They formed that church as a split away and to distance himself from black people. They wanted to remain segregated, much like the history of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I, I don't think a lot of people even understand that the Southern Baptist Convention, like that schism within the Baptist church, that was because of slavery. Like many people within the Southern Baptist Convention, they felt that it was their God-given right to own black people. And th- this racist schism, this shit that's been festering that we were talking about a little bit ago, it no one is openly addressing the history. They'll put out uh, a simple statement that says, hey, you know, this was bad that our church did this, but then they continue business as usual. They don't address the systems that are in place via that racism. They don't address the culture that's in place via that racism. They don't address the way that Black people and people of color are engaged in these congregations via those, via that culture. They they haven't addressed any of it. And it's just festered. And I feel like we're, we're experiencing the overflow of all of that right now shit that's been festering since freaking 1865. What I do find interesting is that the Assemblies of God mirrors itself after the um, like apostolic black church, Mm -hmm. the way that they dance, the way that they move, the way that they like every single thing that they do Uh, is pirated from black culture it all came from that movement and Mm -hmm. that that azusa street movement but even stemming back further than that the you know 
I've I've heard this phrase in churches all the time. You know what I mean? And I I don't know if you've heard this as a regular phrase in the churches you've been a part of, but you know you're going through something. Well, sometimes you just have to praise God through your storm. You just have to praise your way through it. You know, and so in church that that physical praise that that exuberant praise like that that was a direct result of slavery that wasn't some that wasn't a part of white church culture prior to that that was something that came from slavery like you know people dancing and shouting and all of that it was basically slaves taking their their culture from their homelands what they knew of it and associating aspects of that culture with a theology that was forced upon them. And so they cre- that's why the experience of Black church is often so much different than the experience of a white church, because it's drenched in aspects of that culture. And now so much of that culture and those churches, that authentic church experience that was created by Black people much of that is being appropriated because, oh, yeah, we can use that and we can use, oh, this will work for us over well, here. Because they see that a lot with, I've, I, I grew up hearing that a lot with people like, oh, I like to, I mean, I quite literally heard that I like to hang around black people because they, um, black families, because they have a sense of family, they have a sense of community and my family doesn't have that. And so I watch churches pull that in. And um, appropriate based on that. Absolutely, it's um, it's it's something that um, I don't think people uh, talk about enough. It's mm-hmm. it's one of those things where I'm not even suggesting that if that is how people choose to practice their faith, I'm in no way suggesting that people shouldn't practice their faith in the manner that they choose to practice it. But if I'm going to, if I'm going to go on one of your social media platforms and steal one of your posts and post it on my page and monetize it, I at least better stitch or tag you in it. I, I need to acknowledge where this, this benefit that I'm experiencing, where it came from. If I don't, if I don't acknowledge or understand the history, then it's just appropriation, more appropriation in the name of Jesus. My aunt was Assemblies of God, and I would go and spend the summers with her. Um, and part of that was going to church ritualistically. I was at that church all the time. I felt like mm-hmm. sometimes I was at that church more than I was at my actual church. Because it was just, it it was an Assemblies of God church. Like that was every day. That was a commitment. It was a lifestyle. I was non-denominational. I was at church all the time, but not as much as I would be growing Mm -hmm. up and spending those summers there. Part of that Mm -hmm. culture, AG culture is of course, human videos. Because you can't have Assemblies of God without human videos, which are so utterly ridiculous. They did it to a Kirk Franklin song, Lean On Me. They would always choose, like, it's a bunch of white kids doing this. They, they'd they go to, like, the, quote, inner city and do this. And it's... it's oh, so the, they wouldn't sing those songs as much for them. Would, 
acted. They would choose them when they were yes around people of color. Yeah, and mini- ministering to people of color. Yes. Yeah, that, that, yeah. I mean that that's as bad as like they would act it you know, out somebody, though. It's not even sing it, Abel. They'd yeah. act it. I'm stealing your it's trash. <laughs> trash. No, but but I, I experienced some of that too, even growing up in the church of God in Christ that I did. It's like there are when we were doing stuff and connecting with um the the assembly of God church down the road, there were times that they 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 would have a i mean they would put it out on their flyers and on their billboard you know old school gospel service and then they (laughs) yeah and and then they would they would be like to me and you know one of the musicians at the church like you know brothers you know if you if you guys could come down you know we're gonna do a you know, a small set, you know, a few songs, and then we'll do some worship at the end. But this is me. If you guys are coming down, we'll bless you. We'll take care of you. Basically, we want to rent you to blacken up our worship for a little bit, a little bit for this old school gospel service. And they would never say that. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's essentially what it boiled down to. Wow. I want to shift gears. So we've bounced around from different top, which is totally fine. First off, how you, how did you meet your fiance? Mm -hmm. And then two, um, she comes from a very conservative background, heavy in misogyny. And I would like to know how, because you grew up with a strong woman as your mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Just yeah. a tiny bit. Um, how has that intersected in your work of chipping away at misogyny? And it, and man, and even her awesome. also. Um you live in Arkansas mm. and she was IBLP, which means you have to you have to like intersect with those people sometimes. And I know you've had, you've had experiences where you went to a a wedding or a funeral or something like that. And I, if you're comfortable, I'd love for you to talk about that because I think that it's that right there. Yeah. Yeah. I won't talk about her story too much. Oh no, that's um, her own. And yeah, yeah. she, and, and she, she's managing stuff and she's, She's very intentional about how she's sharing her story right now. So yeah. I want to. Also, for those wondering, his fiance is Jen and Jen was on my podcast first season. So if you want to hear about Jen, please go and listen to her. She will be coming back um, in the next couple months. I loved having her here. She's yeah. a friend. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow. Jen, Jen, Jen is my entire jam. Uh, <laughs> for real. But uh, no, um, man. Met Jen here in um, in Northwest Arkansas, and um, you know we we dated. Didn't didn't really think. Where did you meet? I'm just trying to. I'm was, trying to pick I, up. Like I will, I will, I will leave Jen to tell that story. Oh, okay, okay. I will, I will, I will leave. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for her. You know what she's comfortable <laughs> with and what she's. But, um, but um, met Jen. 
engage with her and had a connection. Um, but even amidst the connection, because of some of the differences in the church that we grew up in, there, there was a gap that it was just really difficult early on to close. Um, and for me, I think that the, the gap and Jen, if I'm telling too much, I'm sorry. But, um, for me, I think that, um, I was looking for, you know, I could see so many of the things that she was good at and all of these ideas, all of these, these perspectives, all of the strength, but she was so used to not being able to share that in order to be palatable to a man. Mm. And for, for a while it was like, Hey, I don't, I'm good. I don't need you to agree with me. Like, I know that I think I'm funny and I think I'm witty. I know that half the shit that I say is not funny. You don't have like it's fine. Like I don't need you to agree with me, but I just I just need you to be authentically you. And there was this, there was a period of like just consistently. I don't want to say reminding um, because I don't I don't want to take any credit for anything because she was the one that had to do the work from pulling away from that that thought that ideology and that what she was raised in but um our our relationship like we were we saw each other but for so long it wasn't a thing where yeah we're gonna get married we're gonna do this we're gonna do this because there was just this gap that that just needed to be closed and i don't think any of us either of us could really put our finger on it and um little by little we just we just um supported each other we empowered each other we were there for each other and um i've i've just seen a confidence a boldness uh i feel feel like her middle finger grew like two inches i feel like like she just she's just holding it up it was just and not that she's rude or she's disrespectful or anything but like she stand on what she stand on and she rocks what she rocks with and she doesn't what she doesn't. And, you know, her yes is her yes. And her no is her no. You know what I mean? Stuff we've heard in church. James 5.12. Jesus Christ. It's uh, made my chest tight. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but, but um, no, it was, it was, it was a, it was a really good experience for me. And it continues to be a good experience for me to, to understand exactly what it is that the church has systemically done to women and continues to systemically do to women. And I I won't be specific, but like I, I know of situations where there are people who she knows that were raised and told that, you know, it's bad for you to go to college. It's bad for you to get a job. But if you have to get a job, you can get a job babysitting someone, or you can get a job being a music teacher, or th- th- you know what I mean. Like there's there's certain things that still hold this this idea of submissiveness that's palatable to the white men that were in power in in these organizations and um 
it was it it was just it was a lot that I had to learn. It was a lot that I had to unpack, and a lot that I had to do to to be um, to be before I was even really a partner to her. To be someone who was just worthy of being in her circle and being privy to the things that she has going on, and to you know not be another man contributing to the things that she's having to fight against. Much like. Um, because she is a fair-skinned person, you know what I mean? Her not contributing to the things that I have to fight through and get through being a Black person, Black man in this society, it was one of those things where it was it was steady on-the-job training for both of us. But I think we're both better for it. Yeah, I, as you were saying that, I was thinking, Jen and I were raised in a very similar world where we were taught as women, um, first off, we were we were brought into this world with men believing we were already women. Like we weren't allowed to have a childhood. That wasn't a thing. Um, if we were given dolls, it was because we were learning how to be moms. Not, not for the sake of just like having a doll. Um, mm -hmm. If we were given, um, if we were playing pretend, well, I always had to be the mom. I couldn't be a I couldn't be anything else. I could pretend to be a teacher, that was okay. Um but I I just knew we were brought up to be a complement, not a contradiction to our husbands. We were brought up to be compliant, not a contradiction. But what but why Oh, it, it ask all the I'm, questions. I've said it before. It makes my ass itch, Steph. It mm -hmm. just the what were the two things that you said to be um, We were supposed to be compliant. Compliant or as Com opposed to not or being a compliment over contradiction. Like I I cannot right. my job. So I what I was taught in the this was from the mega church pastor. Women are the temperature. Women are the thermometer of the home. We're the ones that control the temperature. And if we are not controlling the temperature of the home, then everything will be you'll just start to see discord and disunity, right? It's my fault if my husband has a tirade. It's my right. fault if my kids are this way. It's my fault if my husband's not spending enough time with Jesus because that means I'm not giving him the time. That means I'm not taking on enough of the responsibility where he can be deeply in the word. Jesus and Christ. if he's not deeply in the word, then we all know your home is going to be basically one step away from the gates of hell. Two things. Ugh. One, what's the the rhetorical, I guess, mostly? But what's, <laughs> What's what's the benefit of being deeply in the word if you're going to twist it to mean whatever the fuck you want it to mean? First? What's the benefit That's, of being deeply in the word when every pastor has a different interpretation of it and they keep moving the goalpost? What's the benefit of being in the word point. when we obviously have not been given the tools to accurately interpret it? What's the benefit? Mm -hmm. 
What's the benefit of being in the word if we haven't understood the Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek language in its ancient, ancient, ancient Ooh. form, not in its former, um, not like the court. Like, what is the benefit? I wish I had an organ right now just to kind of echo in those guys. I don't know. Apparently in my world, organs like, I don't know what that was. That's hilarious. Like, I don't, I don't. But you you said compliance as opposed to a contradiction. It's like, why are those the only two options? Like, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't look at my partner as being compliant or a contradiction, you know, and I don't, I don't need her to live in one of those two spaces in order for us to be productive and take care of the stuff that we have to take care of. It's just, that's that's the stuff like through through the part of our the, our conversation that we were talking about you know just understanding um you know what it is that the church is doing in regards to mis- misogyny and has done mm-hmm. and historically continues to do regarding misogyny and the way that women are viewed valued disvalued treated and mistreated um Shit's trash. I mean, I yeah. Don't even... Well, but you ask like, why those? Why yeah, just why, the, why, why just the, those? Why but I and then I, as a woman, I look at you and I say, it's about control. The patriarchy, the they have to control everything that doesn't look like them because if they can't control that, then they lose their power. Period. Um, mm-hmm. but. <sighs> If they can put me into a box, if they can put you into a box, then they can control the confines of that box. The problem is, is one, I was never meant to be in a box and that box, those walls just keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. If they can get me into the box, they can continue to change the size of that box. To squeeze you. Absolutely. And I think that's such a dope um, uh, statement that you made. And it's so valid. Um, the the work of the patriarchy, the work of the church in regard to individuals isn't to to manage individuals. It's to get individuals into a specified place where mm-hmm. they can manage the space, mm-hmm. which allows them to manage more individuals. I think that's a dope perspective and it's so valid. If they can get you to stop talking. And they're not going to do that. They're going to do that by putting you in a category, by putting you in a box, by labeling that box. And then they're going to put you in a different, in a smaller box and give that another label and then another label, another label. And because if they can discredit you, so when they put me in a box, they discredit me. They dehumanize me and discredit me. So if they can continue to do that to you as well as other people, they can control their narrative because you're part of that narrative they control. Mm -hmm. You're the label that they put on that. And it's, Nothing pisses them off more than people like your fiance speaking out and me speaking out and you speaking out and other creators saying, we're done. We're out of this box. We're not wearing this label. I can live in the duality of I I can be a compliment and contradict my spouse. And we can have a very, in fact, because of that, we can have a successful marriage. It wasn't until we shed the layers of scrupulosity. For those listening, scrupulosity is um, OCD religion, 
basically, where you can't do yeah. anything outside of like, it's like you got to wash your hands five times in a row. You've got to yeah. wake up and spend exactly X amount of time in the word, then journal, then do this before you can function. Um, so when we shed the layers of the evangelical movement, when we were really deconstructing, I remember just about a month or so ago, I still hadn't taken the Lord's name in vain. It was just, I, I hadn't done it um, in in my perspective of how I was raised, right? Like I wouldn't even mm-hmm. say, oh my God, like that was horrible, damn to hell what? type of thing. Oh gosh, no, no, no. Um, I say Jesus Christ on every other post. I, <laughs> I know, but like I would never do that. And so the other day or the other day, about a month ago, my husband said something along those lines and I looked at him and I had this moment, those moments where you're like, you feel like you're shown the universe of a situation, like the, just the huge, big picture situation. And mm-hmm. it was just one of those. And I realized this is the most honest, truest form of our relationship. And we have been in a really, we've been together since we were 18 years old and I'll be 40 next month. This is the most honest, truest form of our relationship because neither of us are gatekeeping each other. Mm-hmm. Because I was born and raised to make sure that people will were upholding their salvation. And he was taught, he wasn't raised like that at all, but he was indoctrinated into this space when he was 18 to believe that his job was to keep me in line and to guard my heart, right? So if I was saying something, and he's, by the way, he's never, ever tried to control me in any capacity. Like he, he's never, he's never even tried or even thought about it. Like it's, the idea has always been laughable to him. Um, But I realized that there's so much of who we were that we were holding back out of fear that one of us was going to be like, but are you spending time with God lately? Like I'm noticing some things in your life. I'm noticing these these spaces, right? And I realized in that moment, this is the truest space of the truest form of who we are in our relationship because neither of us are going to tell each other that we're not going to condemn the other person. We're not going to try to shame the other person. Um, The places where we hold each other accountable are like social justice issues. And those are conversations. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, hey, I see that you're really passionate about it. What do you want to do about it? Do you want to like, do you want to organize grassroots? Do you want to go to the Capitol? Like, what do you want to do? What do you want to do with this passion? Um, or if I say something or if he says something, we ask each other questions. Tell me more about that. Like, let's get to the, let's get to where that is. Um, but there's not shame in our relationship anymore. The thing that was just so, um, off-putting and it just always, even before I met Jen, just always left a, just, just a sour taste in my mouth when I would encounter, um, people within that, um, fundamentalist evangelical culture um particularly and i want to make sure i say this the right way so it's not taken the wrong way but particularly women i was never attracted to you know 
the concept of being pleasant and being agreeable and mm-hmm. speaking with the speaking with the soft voice. And it's like there, I'm not going to say the name of this family, but you know, the family I'm talking about. And it's like, I will, they're the Duggars. <laughs> She's like, by name. Every, everybody. Yeah. Teach, just Michelle. They, mm-hmm. they, I mean, you can Google now. Yeah. There, there's a whole thing with Michelle. I mean, I'll get into that if you want me to, but um, please do. <laughs> Yes, they, please. Um, they they talk about um, like how even if you don't feel like it, or even if you don't, that's it doesn't align with what you feel inside. You have to talk a certain way, and you have to be pleasant because you're supposed to be the helper, and this and this and this. And it was like Abel. And it's like you. Don't don't ask. I need I need wet wipes. I need <laughs> wet wipes. Now, <laughs> but, now uh, Jesus, Jesus says uh, this. Not, yeah. not my jam. No, I, I, I will I will tell um my my biggest experience with um the Duggar family, and then I will I will I'm going to gracefully um step away from that because I know there's so much of that 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 Jen wants to tell and I don't yeah. want to I don't but um my experience um there was a family friend of Jen's who um a relatively older um woman who found a new boo and was getting married hey do your thing go hey. ahead and find my, I'm not mad at you like <laughs> fantastic and she her and her family were always um, sweet and accepting and loving to Jen, mm-hmm. um, to Jen and her siblings and her family. And Jen has always kept a fairly decent distance since she stepped away from all this. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is one of those things. And she was like, I'm, I'm going to go to this wedding. And I was like, okay. And she was like, well, so she invites me um, to the wedding and there, there's a, there's a this is a black people thing. It just is. If you ask me to go do something, you know, hey, do you want to come do this and this and this? My first question to you is going to be, who's going to be there? It's just, it's just what it is. I need clarification of the circumstances because I oh, I, I'm that way too. Yeah, that, that's yeah. just what it is. Yeah, and um, and so she told me all this, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, and I was like, well, what are you going to wear? And she had this like kind of tight curvy pantsuit that she was wearing shoulders out i was like oh we're gonna piss him off i'm down i'm in i'm coming let's go piss him off and got there and not not speaking arrogantly or anything like that but i was by far the best dressed dude at this at this event like I, what were you wearing? Was, come on come on where were you wearing no man i had on a a, a nice ralph lauren suit um you know fitted tailored it was it was yep. i was just together it was yeah. it was it yep. was a solid look i was i was i was together for this like i i hadn't gone out and been on her arm and you know it was kind of a flex for her too you know what i mean um like i'm not doing stuff the way that you guys think i should do them and i don't give a shit but um 
again, I'll step away from that. I'll let her tell that. But um, we got to the the event, went inside, you know, saw some people, met some people, shook some hands, all that stuff. And then um, I had left my my phone in the car. So I was like, okay, let me, it's plugged into the car. Let me walk back and get the car. And I walked back and get the car, walked to the car to get my phone. And, um, you know, I have on my suit and, you know, an overcoat over my suit. And um, this lady walks up to me with bangs that are this high and then curled <laughs> over at the top. <laughs> um, she had on... Uh, you know, a top, a skirt down to mid calf. And then she had like, they weren't even pantyhose. They were like, they were tights. They were like, they were like the, the kind of tights that are thick enough that you're not worried about them getting runs in them. Yeah. And, yeah. So and, like almost and, leggings. Yes. And then with those tights, she was wearing Crocs. Yeah. She was wearing tights and Crocs. There it is. And yeah. She, and she walked up to me, didn't know who I was, didn't ask any clarifying questions. And my first experience with the Duggar family was Michelle Duggar walking up to me and saying, oh, you must be the parking authority. Is it okay for me to park here? That was my first experience. And um, I <laughs> I let her know in in a way that you you know me and you see when I can be petty. I let her know in a way very unique to me without yelling or cussing that that she was widely aware that I was not the damn parking authority. And uh, and then I went inside. And then once she saw that I was there with Jen, her eyes were this big. And it was almost, they were being, she particularly and her, her husband after a while got involved in it, but she was being particularly aggressive with her false humility, with her false, that fake kindness mm. and coming up and, and Jem was clearly like, you know, Hey, you know, you know, I'm, I'm good. You know, I don't really want to, I mean, she, she didn't say, I don't want to talk to you, but it was like, yeah, no. Am I going to introduce you? No, you can. Like you guys, you guys met out there, you know, it's, it's fine. And they just kept being pushy about it and pushy about it and pushy about it. And, um, yeah, it was, it was one of those experiences where I just got a small snippet of the way that they treat people and the way that they see the world. And the thing that bothered them more than anything wasn't that they had egg on their face because they pulled some racist shit in the parking lot when they came in and they were trying to introduce themselves when they realized that I didn't know who the hell they were. That was the thing that bothered them the most. You could see that humility, that fake humility leave their face. That was the thing that bothered them the most. Mm -hmm. And um, that was, that was my first experience with the, with the the chiefs of the Duggar clan. I was watching a video yesterday. It was the Pearl, Michael Pearl. So there's James Dobson and then there's Michael Pearl. And Jen, your fiance, will absolutely know who the Pearls are. He was their guru 
for discipline, child discipline. He's the one that sounds terrifying. Yeah. He was the one that blanket training, all this stuff. They talk about Michael Pearl and shiny, happy people and horrible, horrible. It's Michael and Debbie Pearl. And I was watching this video where he was saying that if your husband is abusive, if your husband lashes out, you just need to make love to him. Because the antithesis of that is lovemaking, and that will soften him to you. Excuse me? That. That's... Excuse wait, me? Like, wait, wait. Holy shit. What? That's the most problematic shit. <laughs> what's weird? This is what's so strange. Is that, okay, Um, if assuming your husband grew up in that environment, he would get his... He, he'd get beat if he was doing something wrong, if he was lashing out, but like, okay, just get married and you can do that. And then you get rewarded for lashing out. Then the thing just that it feels to me like that kind of is positive freaking reinforcement for being an asshole and lashing out. Totally. Yeah. It's going to perpetuate the thing that you're trying to, to soften. Yeah. It's, um, but right there is a very good view and window into fundamental, fundamentalist homes. I wasn't told that by my parents ever. Mm -hmm. Like that was never, ever modeled in my home. I say a lot of stuff about my upbringing, but that is one thing that was never, ever modeled in my home. Um, however, I... After I got married, I remember um, she was a very close friend to me at the time. And she said, um, yeah, you know what? Um, your job as a wife is to fulfill your husband. And she's like, I don't, I hardly ever want to do any, do anything. I hardly ever want to have sex with my husband. Um, but you just need to learn the art of just laying there and letting him get his needs taken care of. What? I told I told my husband that and he was like never That's, never no. never 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 like that is that no. never is I that mean, acceptable Okay and if I don't I don't want to go too far in that direction but who want, who wants to who wants to fulfill needs with a corpse like Right like it, it it's, right. it's got to be Jesus Christ. The emphasis, though, on controlling and containing a female sexuality inside of the fundamentalist evangelical movement is, um, Mm. it it's infectious. It gets into everything. It's because it's not just we've got to control them from the time that they're eight years old. It's yeah. that now I've got to control at eight years old, they slowly begin to chip away and remove any sort of desire or passion that you would have. And then they move forward and teach you and train women that it's just a job. It's a task. Just lay there. Yeah, that's awful. Um, it's, oh, it's it's it, horrible. If It seems to me like through my through my understanding of this, because remember, like when, you know, I was a part of a Christian community 
And even after leaving Anchorage, Alaska and traveling the world and doing all this, I've always been, until more recently in my life, I've always been plugged into some kind of Christian community. And there's a lot of times, particularly in Arkansas, that there was tons of that fundamentalist ideology that was involved in the community that I was plugged into. And within that ideology, um, not as much this, not this portion as much in um, Colorado, not from my experience anyway, but it just seems like <laughs> there was so much emphasis on a woman's body, a woman's sexuality. Um, there was even within the church that I went to, because remember I was Pentecostal, so long jean skirts and all that stuff. We did that stuff too. You know what I mean? And it was, I remember times in church and much like other churches and even the experience that my partners had um, in fundamental churches, like, you know, we need you to cover your shoulders or to your skirt has to be so many inches past your knee because we don't want to entice the man. If a man is enticed by you, then you're the problem. The man and his dirty ass desires isn't the problem. You're the problem. There there just always seemed to be this focus on women's bodies and women's sexuality. Um, In most of the Christian churches that I've been a part of, but particularly as I'm getting to understand more about this um, fundamentalist movement. Yeah, yeah. And I mean... I was a non I was non-denominational so they cherry picked the worst of every um all the bylaws and then like threw them into a crock pot and called it non-denomination. It's pervasive in any system where men need to control women. Because when women get together change happens. When women talk change happens. And if men can get women to the point where they're so consumed with policing themselves and policing other women, they're never going to get to a place where they can work together. So it's all part of, you know, um, okay, well, sister so-and-so, I'm going with like Pentecostal. Um, So right at home. (laughs) Yeah. So sister so-and-so, um, she is, she has her shoulder showing and that might cause my husband to stumble. I'm going to go talk to her. Not my talk husband. Your husband. I'm going to talk to her because she's my competition. And so I can't have a relationship with her because I feel like her body is a threat to my husband and my sons and so and so, right? So it's the way that they control women. Because if, again, if I'm competing with a woman, I'm not working with her. And if I'm not working with her, change doesn't happen. There's no progression. But I think, I think men have absolutely facilitated that. And I think that they carry carry that, that thinking and that ideology and those standards outside of the church. Um, Mm -hmm. So for Mm -hmm. me, it's like, if I, if I'm going out somewhere with my partner and you know, I'm sitting down and we're getting a meal or I walk to the bathroom or something and some dude walks up and, you know, as long as he's not violating her boundaries, if some dude walks up 
and hits on her because he thinks she looks good. She's dope. You're supposed to think she looks good. Like, you know what I mean? I don't like if if there's an issue there, if he's doing something disrespectful past a certain point. Okay, yeah, but I'm not going to be ready to fight this guy because he hit on someone who I think is beautiful. Yeah, you're supposed to think she's beautiful. If there's something wrong and, you know, if she's feeding into it or something, then I would have questions for her. You know what I mean? But I'm I'm not I, I just don't buy into this whole, like, if someone's doing something wrong, then it's on them. It's not on, it's not on women to manage what other men think or what other men do. And, you know, in that regard, I'm just, I don't know if it's a perfect analogy, but like, I, I just, I'm just kind of sick of that kind of patriarchal bullshit. And it's, it's, uh, it's. It's just something that more men need to be willing and um, vulnerable enough to have the conversation. We can talk about all of the things that affect us and champion all the things that we feel we need to champion. But if I know stuff is affecting the person next to me and I'm not willing to champion those topics, then I, what good am I really doing? You know? Yeah. Absolutely. It's um it's a it's an important topic to keep to keep up front. Um a very important topic to keep up front and um I think that more men need to be vocal about it. Absolutely. Um that's so important because women can be vocal all we want. Yeah. But we're the ones that, you know, on social media that get horrible comments. As a black man, there are just things that when people encounter me and they talk about my experience, um, they talk about my perspective, they talk about my history, there's a certain um, respect and a certain understanding that I want people to have that they don't understand my experience better than I understand my experience. And I am just imploring all of the men listening to this conversation that I'm having with my friend, we have to engage women and walk in these spaces of women. And we have to do the work to afford them the same respect that we want in our issues. It's it's something that it's 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 past time for these conversations to be normalized on our side of things, much like when it comes to racism, you know, we are expecting uh, non-melanated people to champion these conversations on their side of things. It's just it's time. And if we're not going to have these conversations then we need to shut up and stop bitching about it when it's when it's convenient for us to bitch about it. Mm. I really enjoy talking with you and having yeah. the privilege of pressing record is it's just an honor. I could talk to you. I'm just I'm I'm going to end it by just saying thank you and um I'd love for you to come back as much as you want to come back because I value your opinion and your perspective. You're incredible. Everybody go follow him. Um, that's an order. So you're welcome. 
exactly. I'm normally gentle. I'm like, if you want to, no, do it. Don't think twice, just do it. <laughs> so thank you so much.